1: This is the
0: Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the
2: airwaves.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Living History. I'm your host, Matt McLaughlin, and this is an episode I've been looking forward to doing for quite a while. It's the second in our series of myth-busting episodes where we challenge the conventional wisdom about various chapters of history. We've previously done Pearl Harbour, which was a great one. Uh, So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and check it out. And this week's going to be pretty special as well. We're going to be myth-busting the First World War with Professor Gary Sheffield. And Gary's been on the program a few times before. He just really knows his stuff. And there's no one better to challenge these accepted myths of the First World War than Gary. Before we get started, a shout out, a big thank you to our subscribers, and there is a bonus episode off the back of this podcast for subscribers only, and in that bonus episode Gary and I talk specifically about Chateau Generals and their role in the First World War. So if you want to listen to that one, uh, jump on our subscription link and, and join us for that bonus content. But in the meantime, let's meet our guest for this week. Gary Sheffield, thank you for joining us on Living History. Thanks very much for having me again. And this is going to be an interesting one mate because I think as historians we always struggle with this idea of the the perception of history and I like to say to people the history doesn't change the, the history is carved in stone the only thing that changes is our, is our knowledge and interpretation of it and sometimes that can get a little bit skewed particularly in the uh, the sort of popular perception so it's always good to break down some of these uh, some of these established truths about uh, about the great War and uh, and shine a new light on them
3: well, that's right. I mean, uh, I, I guess I've made a career out of uh, attacking popular myths about the First World War. Well,
0: we're going to do we're going to um, do four. So let's jump right into it, and let's start with one that I think is uh, well, it, it's at the heart of the of the story of the First World War that everyone and no one was responsible for the outbreak of the war. Uh, what, what's your take on that? On that myth about uh, about the war just sort of happened? It just sort of came into being in its own.
3: Well, this is a really interesting one because this is the interpretation which first emerged, yeah, quite soon after the end of the of, of the First World War. So you find David Lloyd George, of course, wartime British Prime Minister, coming up with something like this in his in his war memoirs. And you get uh, a, a, an American historian coming up with this, with this idea. Now, this actually was pretty comprehensively debunked in the 1960s and onwards, particularly by a German historian, uh, Fritz Fischer, who put the finger of blame very firmly on, on Germany. And for many years, uh, Fischer's interpretation held the field. In fact, it was added to from the 1980s onwards, really, people started to say, well, actually, Austria-Hungary, they they also had a a major role in bringing about the war. And so until about 15 years ago, there was a sort of consensus that actually, uh, it was the guys with the spikes on their hats, which started it, whether Germans or or Austrians. (laughs) And then in 2012, I think it is, there's, in fact, an Australian uh, Professor Christopher Clark at the University of Cambridge, uh, came up with his book Sleepwalkers, in which he uh, came up with a sophisticated version of the you know, everybody and no one was responsible. And it must say, this actually caused uh, captured a lot of attention, particularly in the popular media. Uh, I'm afraid I, I just don't buy it, uh, along with many other historians who've studied the origins of The First World War. I still think that broadly, that Fisher and the other historians are correct. It's the Germans and it's the Austrians Uh, to try and lump in the 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 British or the French, even the Russians with with those. I think simply doesn't work because they are reacting to some fairly aggressive moves made by Vienna backed up Berlin, Uh, and, and ultimately, I think the war is caused primarily by. Germany and Austria-Hungary. And so now, now there's quite a big gap between what the I still think the majority of scholarly historians think about the origins of the First World War, and that's what, what is out there in the popular media. And of course, given that uh, from 2014 to 2018, there was quite a, a, a big focus on the First World War because of the centenary, uh, that's, uh, I think, uh, a myth that sort of now firmly inserted in place it's yet another one for us historical myth to have a go at
0: well it's an interesting one gary because i think saying that germany started the war it's in, in some corners it's an unpalatable uh, conclusion to draw because it, uh, it seems to me and I'd, I'd appreciate your thoughts on this this is just my opinion but it seems to me that we live in an age where we are far removed very far removed from the situations that led to the first world war even in a even in our day-to-day lives, people are not associated with the military, with the army. It's just something that's that's so distant that we can't quite get our head around it. And I think what that's resulted in is a little bit of a softening and perhaps a little bit of the the rewriting of history to just say war is just a terrible thing. And so anyone that got involved in it was responsible. Do you do you think that's a fair conclusion from yeah, the, the, the general I, yeah, population there's, today?
3: There's a lot of there's there's, there's a lot in that. There's also, I mean, the the bigger picture is that we now find it very difficult to think our way back into the mindset of the generation of the First World War. So, uh, in Britain these days, for most people, the empire means absolutely nothing. It's something which happened in the remote past. Uh, In Australia, Canada, New Zealand, it's the same, and to, to a, a, a reasonable extent, although I think some of it's still there, the sense of affinity and kinship between, you know, the ex colonists if I put it that way, the, the Dominions in Britain, has actually softened. But that's not how people thought 110 years ago, that people really thought that the empire was, was worth fighting and dying for, that the average Australian or, or, or Kiwi or, or Anglophone Canadian regarded themselves as being some sense British. And all of this really mattered. Now, we've got very different views about empire today, but we shouldn't try and just basically read back how people think today to how people thought 100 years ago. And and on top of that, if you look at what the Austrians actually did, which was waging a war of aggression against Serbia, which the Austrians, I think, quite rightly saw as being a really serious threat to the existence of the you know, the multinational polyglot uh Habsburg Empire and they were backed up by Germany for all sorts of reasons, including, you know, I would argue, German uh desire to to go to war to seize territory themselves in Europe. Um looked at it in that stage, if you look at it in the way that people in nineteen fourteen looked at it, you come up with a sort of scenario for war that's not radically different for the reason why the Western democracies went to war in nineteen thirty nine against Germany. Now I'm not arguing that the Kaiser's Germany was the same or as or as bad as Hitler's Germany. You know, it was minus the racial genocidal bit, but it was still a pretty unpleasant regime, particularly if you happened to be in occupied Belgium or France or Poland or one of these places that was actually uh, captured by the Germans. So it, they, they weren't as bad as the Germans in the Second World War. They weren't as bad as the Nazis, but they were still pretty bad, and they were intent on invading other people's countries, and that's how people saw it in 1914. They saw it as a genuine threat to Britain, genuine threat to the empire, and that's a fundamental reason, I think, why why Britain and Australia and the other dominions went, went to war.
0: It's, a, it's an interesting f- uh, fact as well that we cannot get our heads around today a militaristic society like we saw in Germany in both world wars. The Japanese Empire during the Second World War—a society that was built around and made many of its foreign policy decisions based on military opportunity. Uh, we, 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 you know, we don't really have that anymore. We see maybe a t- taste of it in Russia, uh, well. but um, <laughs> you know, it's it's it, again, it's a it's a different era, and the, the concept of a, a government that was was so uh, so led by the military um, just doesn't really apply anymore.
3: Well, well, it, it doesn't in the West anyway, and and of course Germany was locked into uh Western Europe in, 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 in so many ways. I mean, culturally and in many other ways, Germany had a lot of affinities with Britain and France. Uh, I mean strictly speaking, Germany was more democratic than Britain was in nineteen fourteen in, in in the way they elected uh, their 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 representatives, their 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 MPs. Uh the difference was though, although the, the British franchise was more restricted than that of Germany, Ultimately, the Kaiser's government was not answerable to the elected representatives. It was uh, uh, dominated by the military. It was dominated by the Kaiser himself, who I think basically had a screw loose. Whereas in Britain, you know, it was less technically democratic, but actually it behaved in a much more democratic and liberal form. And we've lost sense. we we've we've, we've we've lost sight of 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 all that. Um, and you're right about militarism, but we shouldn't forget that in some ways. British society and Australian society for that matter was a lot more militaristic in 1914 than it is today so of course famously they had a what was called boy conscription Australia wasn't really conscription in in the European form but actually there was a a degree of compulsory service and my sort of favorite um, example of sort of like low-level militarism in Britain is that the favored uh, you know sort of Sunday best clothes for sort of middle-class Uh, children middle-class boys anyway was a sailor suit which speaks volumes about British naval power you know British obsession with the Royal Navy and all the rest of it so it's a lot more militaristic society around in 1914 than than we used to today
0: well, I think we can uh, knock that one on the head that uh, Germany was responsible. Germany and Austria were responsible for the First World War. In fact, well, it's there, there a are surprise some that we would have to would, discuss that. <laughs> well, I say
3: there are certainly some people who would disagree with that, but that's my take, and I think it's the take of the majority of uh, scholarly historians who, who've looked at the subject.
0: I would certainly agree with that one. So let's uh, let's knock that one on the head and have no more chatting about, <laughs> about sleepwalking into war. Um, let's talk more about on the ground the idea of the soldier that the, the poor bugger fighting in the trenches the one that I find the most frustrating and that I spend a lot of my time trying to unravel the lions led by donkeys, the idea that the men on the ground were obviously the lions, the heroes in this scenario and their generals were bumbling idiots in the in the in the, you know, in the, in the shape of Black adder and, and all the other uh, you know jokes and things we've seen yeah. about the bumbling British general. Was that the case? Did the British generals have no idea what they were doing and were happy for their men to just be slaughtered in front of machine guns?
3: Well, like all good myths, there's an element of truth, else it wouldn't work. Uh, It must be said that there were some incompetent commanders. Uh, Not all on the Western Front by any means, and some of the worst ones, I think, actually cropped up in the Middle East, so, for example, in Mesopotamia. Uh, But it's not true that they just happy to see their soldiers killed or anything like that. But I think there was a degree of incompetence. But I'd immediately caveat that by saying that actually, it's not just the individuals, it was the system that went to war. Because the British Army, like every army in 1914, was not prepared for the war it actually found itself fighting. British Army, I think, actually was had a pretty good record in small-scale colonial warfare. Uh, and you know, setting aside the morality of colonial warfare or or all, 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 all the rest of it, actually, I think the British Army had a had a pretty good tactical record. Problem is, they were not up against a colonial force; they were up against the probably the the best army in the world in the form of the German army, and it was a sort of war, modern industrialized war, based on. Artillery, uh, to a much lesser degree, on machine guns, but also, I think, based on the idea of of two sides being backed up by huge industrial complexes, which meant any war was going to go on um, for a long time. There was no chance of having a quick end to the war, unless, as actually happened in 1870, French against the the Prussians, or happened again in 1940. French against the Germans, one side was vastly inferior for whatever reason than the other. That's the only way you get a quick resolution to a war. And that simply wasn't the case in 1914. That the French, which was by far and away the biggest army in, in the West, uh, backed up by the much smaller British army, was roughly equivalent in skill and all the rest of it to the Germans. And given that, then uh, deadlock was pretty well inevitable. And then I think it was a case of the soldiers on both sides attempting to come to terms with the war that they were fighting. And to be frank, some commanders were quicker on the uptake than others. And so I know what I'm about to say would not go down terribly well with some people. I think that the fact that Douglas Haig replaced Sir John French at the end of 1915 was a step forward. The reason I say that is that French was very much of the old school of commander. He was at his happiest, leading from the front, which, of course, you couldn't do in the First World War. You know, he would have been brilliant. In fact, he was brilliant leading a cavalry division in the Boer War, uh, you know, 15 years before. But in the First World War, you needed a, a war manager, someone who was much more... Uh, on board the idea of managing resources and all the rest of it. And Haig, whatever you might say about his limitations as a commander, certainly understood that. I think he was pretty good at that. And on the whole, it was the war managers, people like, uh, for example, Foch, the, uh, the, the French general who became Supreme Allied Commander in 1918, who proved to be the better commanders in the First World War rather than the old-fashioned sort. And in fact, I was talking only very recently about the British campaign in Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq. And I think you see this in spades. You start off with an old fashioned, pretty incompetent, lead from the front type commander, uh, Sir John Nixon. And this led to all sorts of problems. He got the sack and he was replaced by two um, more, much more junior commanders at the beginning of the war. First of all, Stanley Maud, and then. Uh, Sir William Marshall, both of whom, uh, as a divisional commander and a brigade commander, had cut their teeth at Gallipoli, done pretty well, and then they took over, 1917 onwards, and they were getting things right. They were getting their logistics sorted out. They're making sure the medical facilities worked, and building on these really, you know, important, fundamental ways of fighting a modern war. They led the British and uh, Empire forces to victory in Mesopotamia. Uh, And in the end, it had to be done by trial and error. You couldn't simply sprinkle magic dust on a a group of commanders in 1914 and say, oh, you're all be brilliant. You're all, all respond to modern war. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. Many of them were pushed to one side. The competent ones were promoted. And by the end of the war, I think the British and Dominion forces were highly effective. And that, I think, was all level Levels from the very top of the army down to you know the sergeants and privates on the ground, but this wasn't done overnight, and it wasn't done without an extremely bloody. Use the phrase for first time this evening. Learning curve.
0: I think it's interesting that uh, the, the the bit that I see that I object most to when we hear this discussion about lions led by donkeys is the suggestion that the generals were. Very happy to see their men marching into machine guns. That that, that there was a there was a, a moral element of these people as human beings. Some sort of bloodlust where they couldn't help but watch their men moan down in front of them with with great delight. You know, it it just doesn't stack up. It makes no sense. It fails the logic test. Talk to us a little bit about this idea of a general, you know, sending his men to be cut down by machine guns.
3: Well, it's 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 ludicrous. I mean, tactical mistakes happened. Sometimes they happened when they shouldn't have done. Sometimes people re- repeated previous mistakes. Uh, but the idea that people actually were happy about this is simply untrue. I mean, I mean, I, I, well, what I know about is the British and Dominion forces, British and Empire forces. And if you look at the, the, the generals, whether they be British, Canadian, Australian, what, what have you, they were all, or had been, regimental officers. And the tradition of the British Army, which was followed in all of the Empire armies, was that there's a very strong sense of paternalism, that officers looked after their men. And it's one of the great paradoxes that officers have to care for their men, sometimes in in, in almost a literally fatherly way, but then they have to put them in harm's way. And this is something which... Many of them found quite difficult, but few few shirked. And so when you do find higher commanders, you know, a division corps, army, commander-in-chief level, having to take decisions which sent men into battle in to face wounding and death, none of them found it easy. Uh, and they really gave this away. They didn't wear their heart on their sleeve. To be honest, that's true throughout history. If you are very emotional, about sending men into battle, um, you're in the wrong job. I can say this as being a a civilian. I know I'd make a completely hopeless general. I, w- I wouldn't have the mental, uh, the mental strength to do it apart from any, any, anything else. But, you know, I spent 20 years of my career working with the British military, including very senior military, and none of the people I came across were were callous or psychopaths. Um, but they recognised they actually had to do their duty, and sometimes that meant putting men in the way today, men and women in the way of being of being possibly killed, killed or wounded. Um, these were people; they had feelings, but they had to mask them. the The sad fact is that someone like Douglas Haig, or pick any other high commander for that matter, they were in a job because they had chosen to do it. They had chosen; they they had shown on the whole some talent. Um, And the casualties were so high because they were dealing with the largest army that Britain and empire ever put in the field. So I think it's unfair to compare Douglas Haig, for example, with any other general in British military history on a direct like-for-like basis, because no one had his level of responsibility or an army of the size that he commanded. So Montgomery in, uh, in Northwest Europe in, in the Second World War, his army was a fraction of the size of Haig's army. Wellington at Waterloo on the peninsula, 100, 100 years before Haig, his army was a fraction of the size that Haig uh, had, had to play around with. Um, look at army commanders or, 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 or corps commanders. They're talking with... Very sizable numbers of troops would have rarely been matched in British or Empire military history. So they're out there on their own. That's not surprising, casualties are so heavy. Now, this is not in any way to make excuses for them or to say that they were all uniformly brilliant or mistakes couldn't be avoided. None of that is true. But as I said, there was this slow grinding and difficult learning process. And in many ways, if you want to look at the... Responsibility for this, you need to look before the war. You need to look at successive governments which failed to provide the funding to equip and train an army of this size. And beyond that, I guess you've got to look at the electorates. I mean, all of the countries we're talking about here, Britain and the Dominions, were democracies by 1914, some more democratic than others. None of them were putting their hands up at election time and saying, I want to pay more taxes to have a bigger army to, to be more prepared for war. And that's true of democracies throughout history. It's true in 1939, and dare I say it, it's true today.
0: Well, the one I always, uh, just as we end this, uh, this topic, the one I always come back to is, well, we did win the war, so something must have been done right. So uh, <laughs> it's hard to argue with, uh, with that one.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: Gary, you mentioned during that discussion the uh, the British Empire. The fact that we should never forget is that there were a lot of uh, what were called colonial troops, a lot of empire troops from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, Canada, and all the rest. Um, I mean, this one's pretty straightforward, wasn't it? The colonial troops surely were much better than their British comrades.
3: Of course they were, if you believe what a lot, a lot <laughs> of people said at the time and have written since. Uh, Actually, no. This is this is a really fascinating subject because again, it's 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 it is a myth, but it's not one that's entirely without foundation. Because if you look at the success of the uh, Aust- Australians, I mean, particularly the, the the Five Division Australian Corps in nineteen eighteen, uh, the New Zealanders, both as part of the ANZACS and then as the as, as the New Zealanders a standalone formation, Canadians four Canadian divisions in nineteen eighteen. Uh, South African Brigade, which fought as part of of British divisions, on the whole, their level of success was pretty impressive. Um, But there again, there are reasons for that. And there are plenty of examples of British divisions being as good, if not better, than their Dominion counterparts. So, I mean, I I plucked various examples out of the air. So, the... uh, and obviously, the elite, in the sense of fighting extremely well, division would be the Guards Division. But there's plenty of others as well. So, for example, the 18th Eastern Division, which is a, a Kitchener kitchen division raised in 1914-15 of of, of uh, uh, wartime British uh, re- re- recruits. Nothing special, particularly. Apart from, is extremely well trained, had a very good, very good combat record. Uh, there's a 46th North Midland Division, which broke the Hindenburg Line. In 1918, the single, I think, most successful action of that critical day of fighting in September 1918. Well, I should point out, the Australians and the Americans were getting tangled up uh, in the German positions a bit further up up, up the line. I mean, good reasons for all of that. So it's unfair to say that Dominion divisions were all better than British divisions. It's simply not true to say one lot's superior, the other lot's inferior. But let's have a look at the reasons why uh, the Dominion forces on the whole were very effective. The first thing to say is they had fantastic PR Uh, for all sorts of reasons that, and this actually really did annoy British troops, that the colonials, as they were called, got very well written up in the British newspapers, and they were at least out of battle distinctive because they wore different uniforms. You know, the Kiwis had a lemon squeezer and what have. You. Of course, you know, in battle they looked identical; because they were all wearing the same steel helmet. But they did actually have um, identifiable uniforms when out of out of the line, and also British censors weren't allowed to write. I don't know. The Eighth uh, Norfolk did extremely well at this battle, this part of the Battle of the Somme. They were allowed to say, however, Australian forces or Canadian forces uh, uh, seized. V B Ridge or, or whatever happened to be, and so therefore it, that sort of lodged in the public imagination, um, and also the colonial forces they made very good copy, and so they did tend to be bigged up to use a, a to use a modern phrase, uh, and, and believe me, it really annoyed a lot of Brits. Same way as English yeah. troops tend to get very annoyed that you know kilted Highlanders got all the glamour that one hadn't been taken by the colonials, obviously. In operational terms, I think it's important that the Australians and the Canadians actually were in a, at least in 1918, 1718 in the case of Canadians, in a settled uh, corps. Because, you know, the five divisions of the Australian corps that Monash commanded in 1918, you know, are always going to have the same five divisions, uh, that Monash got to know the divisional commanders and their styles very well. Not to say the Australians were a complete band of brothers, uh, certainly wasn't true. There was, you know, enough sort of, you know, infighting or what have you at that level. But all of this stuff really made it uh, smoother for the Australians and had equivalent for the Canadians that they had settled core uh, structures. The Brits, and I think this was a very bad decision, tended to rotate their divisions in and out of core. And because there was, and I think this is also another fault that the British had, they never settled on um, a set of SOPs, we'd say today, Standard standard Operating Procedures, across corps. So you might find that you went to 17 corps who had a different way of operating than 2 corps. And you took some time to work out how they did it, as opposed to anybody else. And by the time you learned, you'd, you'd moved on somewhere else. I think this was a real own goal. This was a real examples of the British shooting themselves in the in, in feet, And it was, I think, completely unnecessary. The other thing which I think is really important to point out is if you look at any of the great Dominion achievements, such as the Canadian capture of VB Rich in April 1917, or for that matter, uh, the fantastic achievements of the Australian Corps and the Canadian Corps side-by-side at Amiens on the 8th of uh, August 1918. They were massively backed up by largely British artillery, by engineers, by logistics, and all the rest of it. Because the way that the Dominion forces were structured, they had the luxury, and I'll put it in that those terms, of concentrating on their teeth arms, primarily the infantry backed up by field artillery. The Brits had to provide infantry, field artillery, uh, heavy artillery, engineers, logistics, all the rest of it. So the Dominions didn't. I mean, obviously, Dominions had a bit of all of this stuff, but really the the major backup was by the British. And so I think if you're, if you're looking in broader terms at these Dominion victories, they're really... They're not just Canadian victory and Australian victory. It's a British-Canadian victory. It's a British-Australian victory. Um, And this was recognised at the time by Australians and Canadians who recognised, you know, without the the massive support by the Brits, it simply wouldn't have happened. Now, there's very good reasons why the Australians, and the Kiwis for that matter, seize upon Gallipoli or, (coughs) excuse me, the Australians' uh, Amiens, And basically say, well, this is this is our achievement. You know, the magnificent military achievements—they have every right to to be proud proud of them. Or the Canadians at Vimy, but actually, pull the camera back, and you'll see behind the cutting edge Dominion forces, there are masses and masses and masses of British. So, for example, who's the um, the head gunner of the Canadian Corps at Vimy Ridge, 1917? It's Lieutenant Colonel Alan Brooke, a British gunner who, of course, becomes chief of the general staff the uh, senior british army officer in the second world war churchill's right hand man i've spent basically a career arguing that we ought to get away from these sort of national labels i think it makes far more sense i think it does far more justice to the soldiers involved to look at this as not a a british action or an australian action or a canadian action or a New Zealand action. Actually, it's coalition warfare. And not only does this mean the British expeditionary force cooperating very closely, primarily with the French, but also with Belgians, Americans, and others. It also, I think we need to recognise that the BEF itself was a coalition force. And it was largely composed of British, but there was these elite and powerful Dominion formations. And as it's fair to say that they tend to be given a disproportionate share of the tough jobs. True British divisions, by the way, basically, if, if you wanted to have a, a relatively easy war, uh, do really, really badly on the attack, and then you get put into the line and don't get asked to do stuff again. If you do well, as the Australians did, as the Canadians did, as the 18th Eastern Division did, then you get thrown into the attack time and time again, as a storm division. So I think it's much fairer to see this as basically as a a coalition effort, uh, an empire effort from the British point of view. And just remember, the bottom line is, however we may think of ourselves today as a Brit or an Australian, what have you, in 1418, the vast majority of people from the Dominions regarded themselves as being in some way British. They saw no um, difficulty in regarding themselves as being an Australian, but also a loyal subject of the king and in some way British. Many of them were actually first, uh, uh, their parents immigrants, or they may have actually simply joined the Australians or the Canadians when the boats arrived at Liverpool or Southampton because they got paid five bob a day as opposed to a shilling. So it's it makes plenty of sense in sort of 21st century terms, nationalistic terms, much less so when you look back at the First World War. So. I'll, I'll be a complete well, you rant make, about that, you make which a good I point, point to- I too. I'll get off my soapbox at this <laughs> point.
0: <laughs> no, you make a great point there, Gary, as well, that uh, you know, perhaps at the structural level, of course, it was collaborative, but also even within the battalions. I mean, the statistic is that one-third of the AIF, of the Australians, were British-born. So it was a time when people moved around the world a lot, particularly around the empire, uh, and so there were an awful lot of uh, a, a lot of Brits fighting with the Australians. So we talk about a great Australian achievement, one third of those forces were uh, were British born.
3: Well, and as I, I like to point out, that Simpson of donkey fame um, was from Tyneside. He was from South Shield, so therefore he was a sand dancer. I think you know, he'd only been in Australia for about five minutes <laughs> before he got shipped out again. And yet he's adopted as an Australian icon, and why not? But I think that makes the point that you've just made absolutely perfectly.
0: I think that sums it up, and there's the, the the thing that I just say to people is you can be proud of your own achievements without tearing down everyone else's. The thing that I never get is what difference does it make if we say the Australians did brilliantly on the eighth of August or they did brilliantly at Villers Bretno or brilliantly at Pozieres? What difference? What, why do we then have to say and the Brits didn't? The Brits did poorly, and we we showed them how to win the war. It's it's a it's a strange, as you say, nationalistic habit that we all have. On that subject, let's talk about the one as our final myth that uh, probably generates uh, more friction than anything else: Gallipoli. Now, I have to say, I've just finished a book on Second Crithia, which will be out soon. Uh, So, I have for the last two years, I've been up to my eyeballs in Gallipoli stuff, and I am amazed that the one. If you if you ask me the question, what was the thing that amazed you most about a, a deep dive into Gallipoli? It. My answer is, it had no chance of success. Ever. From the conception to the execution to every day of the campaign, it was never going to work. That is my take. So talk to us about the myth that Gallipoli actually was a brilliant scheme that was just let down by some poor execution.
3: No, it wasn't. It was never going to work. I I completely agree with you. <laughs> End of argument. <laughs> Oh, you want me to say some more? <laughs> that's a really, that's a really uh,
0: that was a really quick one. No, I, but I, yeah, I, I know we're being a little bit silly about this. No, but you're, but you're, if you're, you look into it, anyone sure. that reads anything even slightly beneath the surface—if we—if we move past the men themselves doing incredible work, holding on when they shouldn't in impossible circumstances—no aspect, in my opinion, of the Gallipoli campaign was ever going to work. It was a fantasy from start to finish. Uh,
3: you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I I couldn't agree more. The only way I can think that Gallipoli was ever going to work is that you change the parameters. So if we're doing alternative history, you know, you can do that sort of stuff. Let's just imagine the Turks actually were as pathetic and helpless as British decision makers thought they were uh, when they launched Gallipoli. And let's just imagine that the British somehow magicked out of thin air massive resources that in in reality were simply not available in, in in 1915 so you 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 provide double or treble the size of the forces sent down to the dardanelles that you actually send not the sort of the fag end of the royal navy you know the, the clapped out old battleships you send the cream of the royal navy and by the way, you come up with a sensible plan, which involves landing troops on both sides of the Dardanelles to uh, take out the, the shore batteries and critically uh, the torpedoes and all the rest of it. You know, basically, if you, if you completely rewrite history and, and produce <laughs> all of this stuff out of thin air, yeah, it might have happened. It still As wouldn't it, work. It, it, well, still it, like, it still wouldn't work. It still wouldn't work. But I should actually say that um, I, so I absolutely fascinating was I for about seven or eight years I was the land warfare historian on the higher command and staff course, which was the the British military's senior operationally focused course. And it wasn't just Brits; we had a number of overseas students, including you know. Several Australians over the years, and one of the things we used to do right at the beginning of the course was to set them plan an operation based on history uh, with the resources that they had at the time. So, what can you make of it? And we did two of them. We did, well, one of them was Operation uh, Husky, so Sicily, nineteen forty-three. The other one was Gallipoli, and in the five or six ty- times of whatever it was i saw the cream of the of the crop of 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 staff officers these are sort of colonel level guys none of them managed to make gallipoli work it it, they just didn't have the resources to achieve it sometimes they did a little bit better than they did in historical reality but all of them in the in effect threw their hands up and said sorry it's not going to work don't have the resources you know where do we go from here uh Pointing the blame, of course, Winston Churchill gets his fair share, which is not unfair. Um, But Churchill, I think, was a man who would have, it's not original thought, uh, by any means, he would have 10 ideas a day. Uh, Eight of them would be ludicrous. One of them might work. One of them would be genius. In the Second World War, he had some we've already mentioned, Alan Brooke, as the the man who would basically say, no, Prime Minister, that's not going to work. He was strong enough to stand up with him. He had no one like that in the First World War when he was First Lord of the Admiralty, professional head of the Royal Navy, behaving more as the commander-in-chief of the Royal Navy than as the political head, as was his wont. And he was very badly let down by his senior naval advisors, who should have recognised the ridiculous flaws in the ships alone plan—the idea you can push a bunch of old ships through the Dardanelles and get through and and, and take uh, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul—it's never going to work. Uh, and Australian historian Robin Pryor, twenty odd years ago, made a very compelling case: it was never going to work, and they should have realised that. But they didn't. They basically—if if they did realise it, they did—they didn't put their hands up. The plan went before cabinet; it was approved by. H.H. Uh, H. H. Asquith, the Prime Minister, it was approved reluctantly by Lord Kitchener. It wasn't just Churchill's uh, folly alone. It was signed off by a lot of people who frankly should have known better. Now, when the amphibious operation, sorry, the, the, the ships alone plan didn't work, they then moved to an amphibious operation, which might just about have worked if it had been put into practice three months earlier. Actually, I don't think it would have done, but it, it, it was its best chance. <laughs> By the time they came ashore on the 25th of April, no chance. Uh, the best that the, the British and the Anzacs and the French, i really, don't forget that, could have achieved would be to get ashore. I think it actually captured more ground than they did historically. But it was a dead end. It was a historical dead end. And of course, thereafter, I, I mean, you've been read, writing about uh, Second Krithia. I'm looking forward to seeing that because it's... Uh, uh, a battle which is, you know, as, as you know, very little bit been, been written about, I think they'd, they'd lost sight of why why they were there. In the end, it was about taking ground for its own sake. And it were, they lost sight of the fact that they're, they're trying to capture Gallipoli in order to free up um, the Dardanelles so the ships can, can get through. Even if they'd captured the entire Gallipoli Peninsula, they still would have had faced problems with the, the Turkish defences on the Asiatic side of the Dardanelles. It just wasn't going to work, as some people saw very, very clearly at the time. Unfortunately, they were not the ones who were taking the decisions in 19, late, late 1914, early 19, 1915. So I've written some stuff on Gallipoli. I hope to return to Gallipoli uh, later. and I I would like to do a big book on the British at Gallipoli because Surprisingly, no one has actually done a book just on on, on, on the British, and there's a lot to be said. Um, by the end of the campaign, I think the British and Anzacs had become pretty good. They were pretty good at trench warfare. It was all far too late. It wasn't leading anywhere, but that's just it. By the end of it, they had mastered trench warfare in a theatre which had ceased to have any relevance because they were never going to get through the, the ships through. They were never going to capture Constantinople. It was a dreadful waste. I mean, it was, I think it's, it's a way, the biggest waste of a very wasteful war. It's heartbreaking.
0: It, there's so many elements to why Gallipoli was never going to work that we can't possibly cover them all here. In fact, I, I think I will do an entire podcast on myth-busting Gallipoli because... The, the the issue I always have with discussing Gallipoli and the chances of success, well, where do you begin? Everything yeah. from the the planning at the top, from the government down to the way the men were supplied and reinforced, was a disaster. I one of the things that struck me when you were talking, then Gary, is actually we talk a lot about, and I think you and I have talked about this about Operation Sea Lion, the mm. Nazi plans for the invasion of Great Britain in the Second World War. And obviously, now as we talk about that, we talk about it, it never occurred, but we talk about the looking back, that had it occurred, it would have, what a disaster it would have been and that it had no chance of success. Gallipoli, to me, is in fact the same. It yeah. was a plan that had no chance of success. It was never going to work. It was always going to be a disaster. But the huge distinction was at Gallipoli, they gave it a go, yes. <laughs> whereas the Germans realised the Germans realized that attempting sea lion was suicidal. Uh, and so uh, it, it really should go in that category of all those It should go in the, Gallipoli should be in the category of those crazy ideas that people thought briefly could work and then immediately realized it was silly and gave up on it. Gallipoli is one of those few examples of when they went ahead nonetheless and then paid the price.
3: I absolutely agree. And uh, it's the sort of thing which, let's just try to put a positive spin on it. It's... it's it's not easy. Uh, it fitted in. I know really we're breaking one- a lot
0: of particularly Australian hearts here. We are because, I, I, actually, we should say this. Let's separate the likelihood of success in a campaign from the achievements, the oh, extraordinary yeah. achievements of the men on the ground on all sides. It is the perfect example of of people achieving in the yeah. face of insurmountable odds I, and still I, I, I'm and still not knocking doing the soldiers the right
3: involved. Sentence. On either side. And we shouldn't make that distinction, but... At at, 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 at all. I mean, really, absolutely not. Uh, But if you try to... You can't excuse it. I think you can explain it in some ways. The idea of using amphibious uh, warfare, the, the strength of the Royal Navy, fitted in very well with the British tradition of launching these sorts of operations. But... If you look back at the British tradition, they didn't have a huge level of success uh, for everyone that worked. And I suppose you, know, you can look, you know, Wellington in the peninsula uh, against against Napoleon as, as being an example of this sort of. There are many, many, many that didn't. And so, yes, it's in the great British military tradition. It's also the great British tradition of, of launching amphibious operations, which go horribly wrong. And also, given the circumstances, the British army found itself, or the British government found itself in, at the end of 1914, trench warfare had set in. There was no obvious and easy way to end the war. They, I think, found themselves thinking, or at least allowed to be persuaded by by Churchill, that this is worth a, 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 a worth a, a try. You could almost imagine them saying, "Well, it couldn't possibly be worse than the Western Front." Actually, it was. Uh, and, and the final thing I'll say is that it's an act of a wartime government army and navy that's immature in the sense that two years later, three years later, they had learned not to do these sorts of things. And so the decision making in 1718, I know Passchendaele and all that, but let's put that to one side. In the big strategic terms, the the decision-making on the whole was based on solid reality, the answer of what could be done, what what could not be done. In 1915, they were basically still flailing around. And this is not the sort of decision, I think, that would have been made by a government or armed forces who would, had who would, who would, who would learned what was possible what what was not. Now, that's, that's not a defence of what happened in 1914, 1915, but I think it might help to give some context as to why these decisions were made. And did Churchill learn his lesson? Norway, 1940, would suggest no, that he
0: didn't. I think um, when we talk about amphibious landings, they've never been a great idea. I mean, there's 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 some ancient history that demonstrates they were, but in modern warfare, amphibious landings until until the Second World War, they they, they were never much of a good idea, and um, even in the Second World War. Jeez, look at some of those marine landings in the Pacific. Oh. I mean, they, they were costly endeavours, even in well, the Second World and, War. So, uh, yeah, and, yeah. Amphibious um, landings, tough, tough at the best of times.
3: And I've done, I've done some some writing on this recently, and D-Day, which is the classic example, it worked because they had learnt from Gallipoli, they had learnt from Dieppe, they'd learnt from various other things, and they stacked all of the odds in favour of the Allies. Massive artillery support, massive bombing uh, lining up the battleships and cruisers to hammer at at the ground and all the rest of it. Even then, it was touch and go at some places. So whereas in 1944, D-Day, as I say, the the Allies deliberately stacked the odds in favour of the invasion. At Gallipoli, it was, oh, you know, what can possibly go wrong? (laughs) They soon failed out.
0: Well, we always... We always say that, don't we? That uh, it took two years to plan D Day and the decision to, uh, to launch troops at Gallipoli was made in three weeks. So, uh, there's quite yeah. a distinction there. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. um, fantastic, Gary. That's, uh, I mean, I think we can put Gallipoli to rest there. We will do a separate, we'll come back and do a separate uh, podcast uh, perhaps in the future on, on myth busting Gallipoli itself because there's so much to unpack there. But this has just been extraordinary. Thank you, Gary. It's, it's wonderful to sit down with someone who has just such a broad knowledge, uh, of the, of the, not just the cause and effect, but the, the reasons that that history took its particular turns during the First War, First World War. I've I've just really enjoyed it. So thank you so much, Gary, for joining us.
3: Oh well, thank you. Again, thank you for inviting me back on. And and uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 been great. And uh, invite me back on at some point in the future. I've got lots of things I'd like to talk about.
0: Well, we look forward to seeing you on the show again. And thank you for tuning in and listening, dear listeners. It's been great to join you once again. It's exciting to be back with a a whole new season of Living History and look uh, look out for for bigger and better things coming this year. So thank you very much for listening. Gary, thank you for joining us. And everyone, tune in again next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.